Good morning. On this beautiful morning, the reading from His Holy Word is taken from Second Samuel 11, 1 to 17. Let's hear His Word. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to him, stay here one more day. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not. Go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab 
had the city under siege. He put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Uriah, the Hittite, died. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Father God, we bring our brother Jackson to you this morning. You have given him the words that you want him us to share with Jackson. We thank you for that. We thank you for the, the diligent way that Jackson has done the work so that we can know more about you, Heavenly Father, and about your word. Father, have your hand on this this man, this brother. Bless his family. Bless Donna. Please, Lord, we ask that you would protect them, provide for them, and give them your peace that is beyond understanding. In Jesus' precious name, we bring this prayer. Amen. David and Goliath. <laughs> Thank you. It has been a privilege to be able to share with you guys for the last five weeks. It's been a couple of years since I have preached on a weekly basis. It's a muscle that uh, I I got to redevelop. I'm tired. <laughs> Why don't you get your Bibles out? If you have your Bible, your phone, you can look at most of it on the uh, in the program. Uh, but by the way, uh, Nancy, first off, thank you. You're reading. You, you make anything sound good. <laughs> and the Bible sounds especially good when you read. Nancy's been coming to Antalya for 50 years. 50 years. She started when she was five and has been coming <laughs> ever since <laughs> Well, we were talking about it beforehand, that there was just a village and carts and horses, she was explaining. <laughs> Hardly any cars. That's just amazing to me. Let me pray. Let me just add my prayer. Nancy prayed fine. I just know I need it. So let me, let me pray. Father God, I stand here and I'm very mindful of what this passage means and what your word means. So I would pray that I would say your words after you, just as Nancy said. Because I know out of Isaiah 55, that's where the power and the clarity and the hope comes from. Because your words never return to you void without you accomplishing your agenda in the hearts of people. And and frankly, Father, we trust that again right now. I pray that whatever I might say that is not of you would just quickly be forgotten. But that your spirit would convict and encourage. And we remind ourselves from the book of James that we would be doers of your word. Putting your word into practice in our relationship first with you and then with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a tragic story. David is a man after God's own heart. If it can happen to David, I mean, if it can happen to David, 
a king that sought God, that God loved, that God blessed, if it can happen to David, man, it can surely happen to you and me. Now, let me just share a little bit of the story. We'll put the first map up here, and you can see on either side, but you can see where Jerusalem is. I'm sorry, on this side, it's going to be a little tougher. To Amman, it's 44 miles, 44 miles. Chapter 10, 2 Samuel 10, gives us the context, which I don't have a lot of time to go into, but David has had enough with the Ammonites, and he goes over. Joab, his general's there. They besiege the city. They surround the city. Now, let me show you what the city would have looked like. This is the citadel in Amman, Jordan. <clears throat> this is where their story takes place, in Amman, Jordan. So this would have been the high point of the city. This is where it would have taken place. And so Joab is leading David's army. Now what it says is, Joab, in the time when kings go out to war, in the springtime after the winter rains, for a short period of time before it gets too hot and the harvest that needs to be taken care of, you go fight. But it says David stayed back. Now, it could have been David stayed back because of his age. It could have been that David stayed back because Joab said, you are far too important to this country for you to be in battle. Stay here. Or it could have been that David is getting lazy. We're not sure. The context kind of says he's starting to take it easy. He gets up from his siesta. If you've ever been to Israel in the summer and the spring, it's stinking hot. So... In a lot of places in the world, there's a siesta time, a time where you take a break and you're in the shade. And David takes a nap and he gets up and he walks out on the roof of his palace. Let me show you another map. This is from the ESV Study Bible, but it's pretty up to date on the archaeological finds of the city in Jerusalem. In fact, you can see that tiered place where I have a red arrow going to. That's what it looks like today. They have found this. They have found what they believe to be David's palace. Now, his palace would have been at the top point of the city. And his mighty men, there's 37 mighty men that are talked about in 2 Samuel. These mighty men would have surrounded the palace for the very simple reason. You want David? You got to go through us. These are men who have committed themselves to David. David would have known these men. This was his bodyguard. This is SEAL Team 6. And so David walks out and he looks over and he sees a woman. The word is purifying herself. Now, why is that important to know? Every month, a woman, because of the blood flow, needs to purify herself, we're told, from the Torah. It is also the writer's way to let us know that Bathsheba is not pregnant. It's a key piece to the story. And David looks out and he sees her taking a bath, cleansing herself. And he should have done. He should have done in that culture. He should have done in our culture. He should have looked away. The only place a woman felt safe in this part of the world today and in that part of the world back then was in her house and in her courtyard. She could let literally her hair down. So she's in a place she thinks she is safe. She doesn't probably see David. But David looks out, and David sees her, and David says to himself, the Hebrew says, he says to himself, it's translated, he said to him. But really, a better way is he speaks to himself. He looks at her and says, wow. He should have looked away. And then he says, I want her. Now, Bathsheba can't turn this down. This is the king. We need to understand that Bathsheba is powered up on in David's position. He wants her. David is going to take her. 
and he sleeps with her. And then he discards her, and she goes home. Well, time goes by, and she sends a note up to the palace and says, Hey, King David, we're going to have a baby. I'm pregnant. It ain't Uriah. He hadn't been home. There's hope when you read the story, when David sends for Uriah. There's hope. There's a moment where you go, has David sent for Uriah to confess to Uriah what he's done with his wife? Instead, David is scheming. He brings home Uriah and he says to him, go to your house. Wash your feet. Now, that phrase doesn't mean much to us. We might even say, well, he wore sandals, he had to clean up. But Uriah describes for us later what it means. Go home and enjoy the benefits of your house. Because <laughs> David's going, Uriah goes home, Uriah sleeps with Bathsheba, we'll claim it's Uriah's baby. Now, the timing is off, but David feels like he's covered. He is covered. Well, what happens? Uriah's made a vow, we learn. In fact, we understand earlier from David saying to a priest in an early several chapters ago that while David and his men are out fighting, they take a vow. It's a holy war. They commit themselves. They don't sleep with women. They commit themselves to God. So Uriah says, yeah, I'm sorry, king, I can't do it. I've made a vow. I made a vow with Joab and the other men. We're committed. And he sleeps with David's servants at the door. Look what David does next. He throws a kager. He throws a party. It says he gets Uriah drunk. Yeah, you get a picture of David prompting Uriah. Just one more drink. Uriah, just one more, man. Just one more before you go. You're going to go back to back. Just one more. And he's hoping that in his drunkenness that Uriah will forget his vow. And it says that night Uriah again slept with the servants. Well, now David is ticked. David is ticked. So he writes a letter. He writes a letter to Joab the general and says, put this man at the front of the lines. Now, where would the front of the lines be? It would be at the gate. The gate is always the weakest part in the city. Now, remember, there is a siege going on. They're just going to outweigh the Ammonites. They're going to starve them to death, basically. But now Joab has to take the initiative, and so they charge the gate, the weakest part of the city, and people are up there shooting down arrows. Uriah probably didn't think twice about leading this charge. He's one of the mighty men. He probably thought it was a compliment. I want you to be out front. Uriah, take these men. Man, go. And he's killed. So Joab sends a message back to David saying, David, I just want you to know what is going on here, what's taking place. He's afraid David's going to get angry that several other men were killed in the process. And David goes, tell Joab not to worry. Stuff happens in war. And then after Bathsheba has time to mourn Uriah, David takes her into his home to be one of his many wives. David might be thinking, I've gotten away with this. But the greater king sees all. 
Let me put up here on the screen, 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. Here's the phrase. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Where did David go wrong? Was it he became too content? Was that his downfall? Was he becoming prideful over the power and the position that he had established as king of Israel? I mean, it has been a tense time. You talk about someone who's had a rough life. David has had a rough life. Remember, he runs from Saul for many years. He's fighting the Philistines. He's finally got peace in his kingdom, which we talked about last week. Has he finally just said, I'm tired of having any more resistance? But what David did is David ran through stop sign after stop sign after stop sign. David should have looked away when he first saw Bathsheba. David should have stopped when Bathsheba came to the palace and turned around and sent her home and said, no, what are you doing? You go. He should have stopped when he brought Uriah the Hittite back and looked him in the eye and confessed what he did. I mean, there's just a number of stop signs. And you know what? You and I run through a series of stop signs as well. Being a pastor for as long as I have, I'm telling you, I've had enough conversations with people who've gotten really tough, tough situations. And they're always amazed. How did I get here? And then I go, well, let's back up and tell me the story starting back here. Stop sign, stop sign, stop sign, stop sign. No, it's not surprising you ended up there. He says to himself, isn't this Bathsheba? Let me remind you what James says in James 1.14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. David forgot that he was not the true king of Israel. David forgot that he lived under the accountability of a greater king. Now let me ask you this question, the same question I ask myself. Do you know where you're weak? Do you know where you're weak? Because I've sat with enough people over the years who will say to me, I am shocked. I, I don't know how I got here. Folks, we're weak. We've all got issues. We've all got those areas. And if you don't know what you are, yours are, ask your spouse. <laughs> you know, one of my weaknesses is when I get fatigued, when I get tired, there's no governor in my mouth. I say things that I shouldn't say. We need to be mindful of these weaknesses. And thankfully, I'm married to a woman who also plays the Holy Spirit in my life who will reach over and grab my knee or grab my arm when I'm starting to say something I shouldn't say. We've all got stuff. Just let's take a moment. Look how badly David dealt with this situation. For many of us, just like David, our first thought is not to repent, but to resist. Our first thought in our sin is not to repent, not to really humble ourselves before God, but it's to resist. We don't quickly confess. We develop a strategy to hide. Instead of repenting, we become preoccupied with ourselves. All David could think about was himself, protecting himself. He had a reputation to protect. And he developed a plan to cover his sin. 
2 Samuel 11, David sends for Uriah the Hittite. He comes back. He checks on him. How's things are going? How's Joab? How are the men? Look at verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Part of the plan. And you and I, when we sin, we have a plan. A plan to protect ourselves. A plan to hide. David's not the first person to become preoccupied with himself. We can go all the way back to the book of Genesis and start in chapter 3 with our first man and woman. God creates Adam and Eve. He sticks them in the garden. He sticks them in this beautiful place. I mean, the hardest thing that Adam's got to do is name the animals. Everything is for him there. Two special trees, but one in particular. Don't eat from this. Don't eat from the tree of good and evil. Don't seek wisdom outside of me. God goes, you want wisdom? Come to me. I want to tell you. It's the same thing today. I want to tell you. I want to direct you. And what happens? Of course, sum this up quickly. Eve is standing there. She eats. She gives some to her husband. He eats. Their eyes are open and they realize, as my grandma used to say, they were naked as a jaybird. Look at verse, or we'll put it up here on the screen. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, in the morning and the evening, God comes and walks with them. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're going <laughs> to hide from God. Like God goes, oh man, I've lost him. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? He gives them a chance. You see the opportunities. And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. We become preoccupied with ourselves. Over the years, when I've seen people drop out of church, one of the questions I ask is, what's happened? Especially when he gets back to me, when someone quits coming to church and I get this, well, no one called me, no one pursued me, no one sought me out, no one checked on me. And I will pick up the phone and call that person and we'll talk and come to find out that's not as accurate as they're saying. And really the deeper issue is they have fallen into something and now they're embarrassed to come back. The one place they ought to be. Instead of repenting, we justify our actions sometimes by placing the blame on others. We sin, but it's someone else's fault. We justify our actions first to ourselves. Can't you imagine David saying, Bathsheba shouldn't have been there right then. Bathsheba should have never responded to my call. Uriah should have just gone home. You can imagine the justification that goes on in David's heart because you and I do it very well, too. We justify our actions. We justify our actions also outwardly to others. We have reasons for our behavior. If they wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done that. You don't understand. You don't understand my life. You don't understand my situation. You don't understand my family. You don't understand my roommate, my spouse, my children, my boss. You don't understand. It's not my fault. We go back to the story of Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, verse 11. And God said, who told you we're naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Again, he gives them a chance to repent. And I love what the man said. The man said, the woman you put here with me. God, this is your fault. Wow. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, 
snake. <laughs> Snakes fall. We justify. We pass the buck. We're looking for excuses. We don't repent. We pass, we pass the blame. Instead of repenting, we seek some time of some type of self-punishment, some kind of penance. Now, repentance is turning from where I am and turning to Christ. Penance is working hard to find favor, to work my sin off. We can think because of what we've done, we don't deserve happiness in life anymore. We punish ourselves over and over again. We numb ourselves because of our behavior. We drink, we do drugs, pornography, work, eating, or religious activity. Frankly, folks, some of us in this room, we're here because we believe God's got some gigantic scale in the sky And we think of all these things that we've done that are tilted in this direction. And so we need to do good things in order to get this thing tilted in the right direction in our favor. My parents, now really my sister, let me show you a picture of a French poodle. I grew up with this French poodle. Her name was Camille. Frankly, she had a better haircut than all of us. And my dad was the only one who could discipline her. Man, this dog was hyper. But my dad was alpha dog. And so what he would do when he disciplined her, he would tie a leash to a doorknob and he would take Camille and he put her on the leash and she just could sit there. You know, it was kind of her time out. Well, it happened so frequently that it got to the point all my dad had to say was, Camille, go. And this dog would go over to the leash and stick her head under the leash until the leash is hanging on her neck and just sit there. The leash didn't even hook up. She would just sit there with the leash on her neck. And I would try to tempt that dog. Come, come, Camille, come here. I have something for you. That dog would not move until my dad came along and said, okay. We live under a leash, many of us. We keep going back to the leash. We punish ourselves over and over and over again. We do penance over and over and over again. We are slaves to guilt and shame in our life. Someone once said, if it was not for guilt, the work of the church would go undone. Instead of repenting, some of us become spiritually stalled. We might go through the motion. We might go to small group. We might go to service. We might do all the things, but our spiritual life gets stalled. And frankly, if you're not moving forward with God, you're moving back. You know what we need? We need a Nathan. See, in chapter 12, what happens is God tells Nathan, the prophet, about David and says to to Nathan, I want you to go confront David. Now, you're Nathan, right? You're Nathan. He knows what's going on. He knows that David just killed Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men. If I'm Nathan, I'm thinking, not a big step to kill a prophet. <laughs> so Nathan's thinking strategy, strategy. So he goes and he says to David, David, there's a guy in another town. And there's a problem, and I, I need your input as king. There's a wealthy guy who's got a herd of a flock, a bunch of sheep all over the hills. And then the guy across the street, he's so poor, and they saved up and they bought one little lamb, Lucy the lamb. They love Lucy the lamb. 
They feed Lucy the lamb at the table. Lucy the lamb sleeps with the family. They love Lucy the lamb. But you know what happened, David? This rich guy had some people come in from out of town, and he wanted to do a barbecue. So instead of getting one of his lambs, he goes across the street and grabs Lucy the lamb. He barbecues Lucy the lamb. It says David got ticked. Paraphrase. He got angry. He said that man should give his life. What he needs to do is now pay back four times what he's done. In line with the law. Now I want you to picture this conversation. And David is angry and Nathan's standing there as he shared the story. And You know, David is mad. He's vibrating. He says a man has no mercy. And Nathan looked at his king and he says, you are the man. You are the man. What does God use in our lives to be a Nathan? Well, let me give you a couple of things. One, God uses the steady reading of the word in partnership with his spirit to convict us. As we steady read the word, listen to the word, process the word, the spirit of God convicts, holds a mirror up to our face. Problem is, some of us are so deep into our sin, we are so numb, we are no longer sensitive to the spirit. God uses the struggles and failings that come with the choices we've made in our sin. He allows us to wallow in the choices we have made, to feel the full weight of our failings, till we finally get to the point and we go, God, help me! God uses those who love us to challenge us. And our first thought is they're being judgmental. Wow, they're just being judgmental. No. They are willing to love us hard enough to tell us the truth. Once we take ownership that we have sinned, we need to understand that first and foremost, we have offended God. Before David offended Bathsheba, before David offended Uriah the Hittite, he first and foremost offended God. Let me put up here on the screen for 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Then Nathan says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Finally, David says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Bingo. Once we understand that we've offended God, we can feel overwhelmed with that sin. Overwhelmed with our rebellion and our actions toward God. I've had many a conversation where someone comes to my office and said, God can't forgive me for this. I've done the unpardonable sin whatever it might be. We have forgotten that God is better at his job than we are at ours. Jesus is a better forgiver than you and I are a sinner. And I'm a good sinner. 
But Jesus is a better forgiver than we are a sinner. My wife will tell you that I like funky people. I have a history of having friendships with some of the strangest people, very much unlike me. One Sunday after the service, I'm standing down front and it's clearing out. I'm chatting with people. It's clearing out. I'm just about to leave. And a guy comes up, man, he is tatted up. He is one rough looking dude. And he walks down the aisle right over there. And he yells at me about 15 feet away and said, hey, preach. That's a good word, man. I was talking about grace. He just said, you need to know I am beyond that. There's no hope for me. He turns around and walks off. And I go, wait. Come back here. Now, this has all happened in our auditory. I go, come back here. I said, you can't say that to a pastor. I said, that's like holding up a, a red sheet in front of a bull. <laughs> so we made an appointment. He came in later that week, sat in my office. His name is Sean. And he told me his story. He'd just gotten out of prison. He's a white supremacist. He had robbed a bank with a machine gun, which made it a federal offense. Man, he just, he just went on and on. And frankly, my mind going, well, you may be beyond God's grace. <laughs> and when he finished, I looked at him and I said, Sean, as bad as you think you are, you're worse. And he looked at me and I said, Sean, we'll say it again. As bad as you think you are, you're worse than that. And then he started getting angry. And then I said, but Sean, you are more loved than you could ever begin to understand. As bad as you think you are, there's one who has died for you. There's one who's made repentance and allowed repentance to be possible for you. Some of us think we're at a place that we are beyond the ability for God to forgive. Sometimes what we say is, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Which is one of my favorites. Are you suggesting your standard of holiness is higher than God's? I think I know what we really are trying to say. We're trying to say, I've shocked myself by this. I can't get past what I've done. We've scared ourselves with the capacity to do something so ugly, whatever that might be. But, do you think you're worse than David? David sleeps with one of his mighty men's wife. He brings the husband home, and when the husband doesn't do what he wants, he writes a note. He gives this man his own death warrant, gives this to Joab. Put him in the front of the line, I want him killed. You think you're worse than David? Even my friend Sean, with all the things he shared, he's not worse than David. David says this, let me put it up here on the screen. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You know what many of us really need and what many of us forget? We manage our sin first by comparing it to others. Well, I'm not near as bad. I'm not near as bad. 
instead of measuring ourselves against the holiness of Christ, what we need is we need a fresh view, a growing view of grace. Let me put this up here. See, when we first become a follower of Christ, we have a certain understanding of God's holiness, and we have a certain understanding of our sinfulness, whatever that might be. And then we have a certain understanding of the size of the cross. When we become a follower of Christ, we're able in that moment to understand the work of the cross is sufficient for God's holiness to be reconciled to this broken, sinful person. But the problem for many of us is, now you put up the next one, our view of grace never changes. Our view of God increases. Our view of ourself increases because the more we know about God, the clearer picture we get of ourselves. The holier God becomes in our eyes, the more sinful we become. But our view of grace doesn't increase. Where we need to be is we need to have a growing... Next one. Thank you, Don. We need to have a growing view of grace. Grace is sufficient. It is sufficient. There is more than enough. All right, let me wrap this up. So how do we engage with this grace? Very simple. We confess. Confess. 1 John 1, 9, a Christian's bar of soap. Let me put it up here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But do you notice what that says? If we confess. Confession is what engages us, connects us with grace and forgiveness. We have been forgiven, but we don't enjoy grace and forgiveness fully until we confess. So what does confession sound like? Well, let me read you David's confession. Psalm 51 is his response to this situation with Bathsheba. And let me read it the way I think David intended. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak. You are justified when you judge. We confess because we've offended God. We confess because we have offended those made in the image of God. We don't confess because we got caught. We confess because of our relationship with God has been damaged by our behavior. Confession. It is calling sin, sin. One of our elders is sitting here and he knows these stories all too well. When people come in and want to talk to us and it's something bad, one of the things I quickly assume is this isn't all of it. There's more. See, they want to deal with as minimal, as little as we can. Isn't that just our human nature? But confession is calling all of sin, sin. And frankly, we get a good picture of a great king submitting to a greater king in, in David's confession. Psalm 32, another psalm that he wrote in response. He says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Repenting, turning from this and turning to Jesus. And then reconciling, if we need to, with those that we have damaged along the way. 
Boy, I'd love to heard that conversation with David and Bathsheba. Man, she knew. She knew that David killed her husband. I wonder if did he ever apologize to Joab to making Joab a murderer? Those who he led, those who trusted him. Reconciliation. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor, when I was just a puppy at a church, there was a guy on our staff that uh, I just didn't get along with. I, I don't know what it was. If he said up, I said down. If he said in, I said out. I mean, it was just, we could not get on the same page. And, and the tension was thick enough that our boss, our executive pastor, called us both in one day and said, if you can't get this worked out, both of you need to go. I didn't know anybody else knew. Don and I took another position. And we were planning a church and our services for a long time were on Wednesday night. And we'd gather together and we'd sing and I'd sit in the front row. And the Spirit of God began to whisper in my ear, what about this guy? You never reconciled with him. What about this guy? And you know what I would do? Here's what I go. We're good, Lord. We're good. You know, my, we're good. Oh, no, man, we're good. This went on week after week after week with me trying to justify. No, man, we're good. I'm good. We're good. Until finally I submitted. And this happened always while we worshiped. I said, okay. Okay. I found out where he was. I wrote him a letter. And I followed up with a phone call. And I got him on the phone and I said, and I'll be calling John. John. I am sorry for the way I treated you and the thoughts that I had in my heart about you. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And true to this guy's character, he goes, Jackson, absolutely done. Absolutely forgive me. In our reconciling with God, there are people we might need to reconcile with. And it's a step that many of us forget. And then the last thing is Philippians 3.13. Man, this is Paul. This is Paul who was also a murderer. This is Paul who persecuted the church. This is Paul. And what he says to the church of Philippi is, Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it fully the gospel. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There comes a time we do our work. We do the hard work with God. We do the hard work with people. And then we have to say, okay, that's here. And I'm moving this way. Don't replay the tapes. Don't rehearse the things that have happened, and we do, and we do, and we got to remind ourselves, that's settled, that's done. I live in the grace of that. But folks, if this could happen to David, it can happen to you. It can happen to me. Let's pray. Father God, there is not a person in here that has not sinned and offended you already today. May we learn to live with short accounts with you. May we be quick to repent. And Father, may we be quick to reconcile with those that we've offended. 
We thank you that we have a God, you, who seek us out. You receive us. You forgive us. We don't live in fear. Because you have given us Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.